0: Good morning, Chapel Hill. It's delightful to be with you to welcome you back from last week's uh, Welcome Home Sunday. How many of you partook of the decadent chicken and waffles? No one? Somebody did because we had a bunch of line out there. I did. I felt guilty for a week, but it was awesome. So if you are new to us, and I know I have one from Carmichael who is here today, we welcome you and and all of our other visitors today, delighted to have you here. If you are new, you might wonder why the pastor has a purse. Why does the pastor have a purse? You know what purse this is? Exactly. This is Nana Carol's purse. I told you a story last week about our daughter, Rachel. We were leaving a restaurant. We are crossing over uh, to an ice cream place. And Rachel was dashing out into the traffic, four years old. And Nana was the closest but not close enough to grab her. And so she took this very purse and she hurled it at Rachel and knocked her right off of her feet and saved her. It's amazing. Rachel turned 26 yesterday, and it's amazing, frankly, 22 years later that we still have this purse. But actually, if you know my mom, you know my dad actually had to rent a storage unit just to keep all of her purses. So it's not that amazing after all. It's probably pretty predictable. Anyway, uh, Nana knocked her off her feet to save her, and really, the story that we're looking at, the story of Jonah, is a similar story. God knocked Jonah off of his feet to save him. He didn't use a purse. He used a storm. Jonah had been told by the Lord, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh. And uh, they were bloodthirsty and cruel people. Jonah wanted nothing to do with preaching to those people. In fact, he got on a boat in Joppa and headed the absolute opposite direction. What, What city was he headed towards? Tarshish. He headed Tarshish way. He was going to go the opposite direction. He wanted nothing to do with this. And the Lord said, wait a second, you don't get away from my call that easily. And so he brings out his own version of Hurricane Florence, and that, uh, that, that ship is besieged and stopped dead in their tracks, and really they're wonder if, if they might be stopped dead, period. That's the story. We're really familiar with that. We're familiar with how uh, he gets saved. We know about the fish. We'll hear about the fish next week. We know all of that. What I realized when I was reading through chapter one this week, though, there's a side story that we sometimes ignore. There's a side story and it has to do with the other passengers that were on that boat because we discover that in fact those sailors that were traveling with Jonah, they thought they were on a journey from Joppa to Tarshish but by the end of their trip they had made a journey from unbelief to belief. So the side effect was that that Jonah's witness, Jonah's testimony, ended up bringing the entire ship to faith in God. And it happened through a lot of questions. I had read this story countless times. I had never noticed, though, how many times they asked questions of him. And so as I share this story with you today, it's Jonah chapter 1, starting with verse 4. You may turn to it now or listen to it, turn to it later. But I want you to count the number of questions that the sailors have for Jonah. I think you might find it very fascinating. All right, here we go. Jonah chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God." Perhaps the God will uh, give a thought to us and that we might not perish. Then they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where are you from? What is your country? And of what people are you? He said, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men said, and then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what should we do to you? that the sea might quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try to get back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they made a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, may this be more than an interesting and entertaining story. May it be a transformational moment as we encounter your word through your spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's quite a story, isn't it? Jonah may have been the most reluctant evangelist we will ever find in the Bible. He didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. He wasn't interested. He didn't seem to even want to preach, want to share, want to witness to the sailors that were on his own doomed boat. He didn't seem to care. And yet, by the end of the story, those sailors have all come to believe in his God through his anemic one-sentence sermon. It's, it's, it's really quite astounding. These guys who had been praying to every god they could think of. I mean, they had held a list. They were going to cover all their bases because they were desperate. These guys, by the time that they have encountered Jonah's god, the real god, the god of heaven and the sea and the dry land, they're on their knees before him in worship. Making sacrifice. Making vows. Promising to serve him forever. How in the world did these Did these pagan sailors move from unbelief to belief? Especially with the most half-hearted preacher that you may ever find in the Bible. And the answer, I think, in part is it started with their questions. Their questions. Did you notice how many there were in the story? How many did you count? Eight. Some some counted ten. I, I think there's seven or eight of them in there for myself. Um, and that's a lot of questions. And remember how they're being fired off at him. There is a storm like Hurricane Florence that is threatening to swamp this boat. I mean, so this, the wind is screaming at them. And in fact, if you look at the, uh, the ancient text, the actual original language, you discover they didn't speak the same language. And so, so Jonah's trying to speak to them in their language that he doesn't know. And they're trying to speak to them in him and in his language. It's a mess. And yet they have all of these questions because they are desperate, desperate men. I attended Alpha this last week for the first time. I cannot encourage you enough to come and join us on that. There were like over 100 people that were there. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, a, a, a professionally done video, a great meal, free of charge, how you can you do better than that, and an opportunity to talk about the things that we've learned. The 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 um, the Lego the logo, the logo uh, of of Alpha is this this big red question mark, and that's because the whole I approach to Alpha is it's built on the idea that there is no question too stupid to ask, and that all questions are welcome. It is amazing, I think, how many in our culture are held back from faith because they don't even feel the freedom to ask questions. They feel too stupid. They don't want to be called down on or scorned for it. These sailors had a lot of questions, eight of them or so, fired like a machine gun at this guy from these unbelieving but very desperate men. Unbelieving people always have questions. It's one of the reasons they are still unbelieving. They always have questions. And as a matter of fact, they are often the same questions, generation by generation by generation. We find those questions in this story. I was really quite astounded as I read through this to realize the questions that they were asking are at their core the same questions that people ask today. Michael Ramsden from RZIM came and spoke to us one time, and, and he said there's always a question beneath the question. And so I want us to look a little bit at the question beneath the questions that these sailors are asking. If you are a believer, these are the questions that are niggling at your unbelieving friends. And if you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, it could be that one or two or three or five of these questions are your own questions. So take heart to know you're not alone. Let's see how the story unveils these questions, okay? The first one comes when the captain walks down into the hold and finds Jonah fast asleep. Remember, the sailors are up topside. They're doing their best to save their lives and to save the ship. The captain walks down below, and what does he find? Jonah is fast asleep, and his first question to him was, What do you mean, you sleeper? Which translated means, Get your butt out of bed and come help us! That is the exact literal translation of the Hebrew Maybe not quite, but every one of us who had a dad heard his voice in that captain's question, right? Saturday morning, get your butt out of bed, we got work to do. Well, it was a little more violent even than that. What are you doing? And really, the core question the captain was asking was this. Don't you care? Isn't it? This ship is going down. Our people are about to die, all of us. Don't you care that this is happening? Don't you care what is going on around you? Do you really care? This may be the most important question that you're going to have to answer to your unbelieving friends. Their question is, do you really care? Am I just a spiritual project for you? Am I just another notch in your spiritual belt? Or do you really care about me? When you're sharing your faith with me, is this out of your love and your genuine concern for me? And honestly, I think part of the problem Today is that many Christians really don't care about unbelievers because they've got theirs. They've got their salvation. They've got their church. They've got their familiar worship routines. They've got their comfortable circle of friends with whom they hang out. They're Christian friends now. And they have stopped caring about the unbelieving group that they left behind, the group they once were part of. They don't care. We don't care. We don't have a heart for the lost. The heart of the gospel begins with a God who cares. For God so loved the world, the broken and rebellious world, that he sent his only son. If there are friends and family members you have, schoolmates, workmates, if that, that do not yet know Jesus, who are sinking, as Jonah's sailor friends were doing, into spiritual death, and that doesn't grieve you, that's a problem. That's a problem. And you really ought to consider praying before the end of this day that the Lord will take the indifference in your heart and turn it into a a passion. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost whom he loved. Do you care about the lost? It's the first question. The next one is a question that has plagued us for generations, eons even. It's a question that comes out when the sailors realize that, well, that Jonah might be the guy that's responsible for all of this, all of this calamity. They say to him, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? And really the core question is there, why is there evil? Why are bad things happening to us? Why are bad things happening to good people? And I'll bet this is a question you yourself advance ask as you look at the headlines across the world. It is certainly one of the the questions that keeps people away from God. How can God let such awful things happen in the world? Especially to all those good people. Of course, the problem is we are never as good as we think we are. And whatever befalls us is probably never as undeserved as we think it is. I'm just saying. But in fact, this issue, this issue of evil in the world is one of the really vexing problems for people. Why am I sick? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why is my child running away from the faith, running away from me? Why did a tree fall down in North Carolina and kill a mama and her baby? Why is there evil in this world? It's a very real question and we need to have the courage to face up to the hard, hard question that comes from our friends. The next Question actually is a series of four questions, but it's all at it, at the core. It's the same question. There there are rapid fire questions that come one right after another. They say to him, and remember, they're screaming this over the top of the wind. They say, "What is your occupation? And where do you come from? Where where is your country? and And of what people are you?" The question underneath that question is simply this: Who are you? Who are you really? Why should I listen to you? You claim to know this God. Why should I trust what you have to say about this all-powerful God that you claim to know? I need to know who you are before I'll trust the God you say you know. Christianity is at its core a relational faith. God sent his son to earth to reveal himself to us. One of the names that he had was Emmanuel, which means God hanging out with us. God with us. And Jesus' ministry was utterly relational. He didn't just do miracles to draw the crowd and then preach and then go back home and rest. Jesus lived with and among the people. And as they lived with him, as they got to know him, as they got to trust him, then they believed in him. It is utterly relational. And we often approach Christianity as if it's just information we need to pass on. Some Christians kind of, they drop sp- Christian truth like a spiritual cluster bomb in hopes that it's going to hit somebody. They let their bumper stickers do their talking for them. But the real journey from unbelief to belief usually occurs in relationship. Like what we have in our life groups. We have 109 life groups If you're not a part of one, you're missing out on something. And not just a Bible study, although that's part of it, but it is Bible study set in the context of honest relationship where we are sharing the truth about our lives, the good stuff and the hard stuff. When our marriage is struggling, when our kids are struggling, when our job is struggling or we're struggling with our job, if unbelievers see you are willing to be honest about what's really going in On in your life, including the hard stuff, they're going to be way more likely to be open to your conversations about faith. Jonah answered that question of, who are you? Simply, he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And after he said that, we are told that they were terrified, and then they had a follow-up question for him, and it was this, what, what What is this that you have done? Do you understand why they're asking that question? This guy has just told him that he fears, he serves the God of everything. The God of heaven and the God of the sea and the God of the dry land. He says he fears this God, that it is his God. And yet, he's also just told them that he is disobeying that God. He's running away from that God that he supposedly fears. And how is he running away from God? On a boat, on the sea, that that God created. And they say, how stupid can you be? (laughs) What is this that you have done, they say. And the underlying question on this one really is a very familiar question. Why are you such a hypocrite? Why are you such a hypocrite? You claim to fear God, but you are flagrantly disobeying him and you're bringing calamity upon us in the process. You realize that the, the results, the consequences of a disobeying God almost never are a solo act. It always has collateral damage. There is always radioactive spiritual material that is spread out into the lives of those around us. And these guys are about to die because he doesn't really believe what he says he believes. One of the most painfully appropriate questions leveled at the church today is this. Why are you such hypocrites? You claim to believe God and yet you live your lives as functional atheists. And even worse, you disobey the teachings of your God, and in the process, you bring calamity on the very people you claim to love the most. How many times have our hearts been broken when we have heard about supposed godly Christians who have suddenly gone off the deep end, abandoned their families, and and sought their happiness in some other new relationship? It breaks our hearts. How many times have our hearts been broken even in this last year when when we discover that respected Christian leaders have been living lies? Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. I think the, the feeling is echoed across our culture. Why are you living like hypocrites? And then comes the last question. After the sailors are convinced that Jonah is, in fact, the one who's responsible for this evil that has befallen them, they say this, What shall we do with you? What shall we do with you? In other words, if you are who you are, if what you are saying is true about this God of yours, that he's all-powerful, that he's a maker of the sea, that he is the sovereign over all things, if, if we are really in peril because of this, then what shall we do with you? Or put a different way, what shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to be saved? When Peter preached the great Pentecostal sermon and and the book of Acts, at the end of it, someone raised his hands in the audience and said, what must we do to be saved? You've convinced me, so tell me, what do we do? And it is the ultimate question facing every human being. When we are finally honest about our questions, when we come to grips with how really really broken we are, especially in the face of a, a holy God, this really is the final and most important question. What must I do to be saved? What shall we do with you? These were the questions of desperate, unbelieving men. Here's something interesting. Jonah doesn't really hardly answer any of them. Do you notice that? He really doesn't answer very many of the questions. And actually, that's kind of a relief for us. Because we often feel we're obliged. If our friends ask spiritual questions, we feel obligated to have the answers. And if we don't, somehow we're going to be responsible for their unbelief. That is a lot of pressure to bear. And yet we discover Jonah really doesn't have very many answers to offer. He offers something, however, that we can offer. He offers something even more effective than answers. He offers his life to them. He offers his life. The real answer to the questions they were asking was not found in Jonah's words. It was found in his sacrifice. He says, I'm the reason. I'm the reason for this calamity. So pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will grow quiet for you. And in the end, they were saved not by Jonah's words, but by his actions, by his sacrifice. something interesting to me, when the captain came down to find him in the hold, and he saw him, after he chewed him out for still being asleep, he said, arise. Remember, he'd gone down, 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 down. The captain, this pagan captain, calls him back up again. He says, arise. Call out to your God. Maybe your God Will be the one that takes notice and and saves our lives. Pray for us, he says. Pray to your God. The interesting thing is the story does not reveal that Jonah offered any kind of prayer at all. The the captain begged him to pray, and Jonah doesn't pray. Some commentators view this as a, a proof that he really, he had contempt for the non-Jews. He couldn't have cared less. He didn't, didn't care for the Ninevites. He didn't care for these pagans. He couldn't care less. But I think the, the end of the story suggests another possible interpretation. I think that Jonah did not pray because Jonah didn't need to pray. He had already prayed. He knew what was supposed to happen. He already had talked to God. God told him what he wanted him to do. He ran the other way. It wasn't that he didn't know what God wanted him to do. He just didn't want to do it. He knew this was his fault. Jonah didn't need to pray another prayer to discover what God wanted him to do. He needed to act on what God had already told him to do. I want to to be cautious about this because I'm not suggesting we don't need to pray. Someone said, yeah, I'm going to go out and tweet. Pastor Mark says, we don't need to pray. Please don't tweet that. We obviously need to be a praying church. We need to make sure that we ask, act with the power and the permission of the Holy Spirit if we're going to accomplish anything that's worthwhile. But when it comes to sharing our faith, too many Christians are paralyzed in prayer. They pray, they pray, they pray, they pray, they pray. Oh God, please save my neighbor. Oh God, please save my classmates. Oh God, please save my workmate. They pray and pray and pray and they do nothing. Nothing. They do nothing. The Christian gospel is a gospel of action. God put on flesh and came to earth to save us. The apostles were sent into the world to teach and baptize and make disciples. Jesus didn't say, go home, just stay there and pray that the world will be saved. He said, go into the world. You make disciples. Again, don't misunderstand me. We should be praying for the unbelievers in our lives. But there reaches a point like Jonah... Where we know exactly what we ought to be doing, we just need to do it. We need to stop praying and start obeying. And I'll say that I am exhibit one. Cindy and I have been praying since we moved into our new home that we might be a good witness to our neighbors. And we have had great plans how we're going to deliver homemade hot fudge in jars to each of the houses And have them over for block parties and blah, blah, blah. We've been in for six months. Guess how much of that we have accomplished? Bupkis. Nothing. Nothing. It's been all prayer and no action. And finally, my wife said, this is ridiculous. We've got to do something. Our neighbor lady is alone. She is a widow. Her mailbox is falling over. Let's offer to repair it. Of course, she says that to me last Sunday afternoon. The Sunday afternoon of welcome home weekend. It has been a huge weekend. I am exhausted. I don't want to love my neighbor on a Sunday afternoon. But my captain persisted. Good job, first lady, Lady, she said. And so reluctantly, I tagged along, and of course, the woman was touched, and we, it didn't take too much to fix it for her, and the next day, Cindy found her wandering the neighborhood with a brown paper bag that had a bottle of wine and a thank you note, but she was wandering the neighborhood because she didn't know who we were. She didn't know our name. She didn't know where we lived, so she's walking up and down the street with with this bottle of wine, asking people, do you know these people? All that she knew is that we had a blue truck. My blue truck happened to be parked in the garage that day, so she couldn't even find the blue truck. Finally, she found us. She gave us the wine, the note that said, dear neighbors, because she didn't know our names. And so it was the beginning of a relationship. Who knows where it will lead? Who knows if any spiritual fruit will come out of it? But all of this started when we got off our knees in the prayer room and got down on our knees by a broken mailbox post. Jonah didn't pray because he didn't need to pray. He already knew what he was supposed to do. And that was his call to sacrifice, to offer himself. You realize, of course, this is a type, an image. It's a a picture of Jesus, right? In more ways than one. We'll see that next week, particularly. Jonah is called a type of Christ, uh, who, who, of course, laid his life down for us on the cross. And, and God may not call most of us to this ultimate sacrifice. But really, if we, are the, who are the followers of the one who sacrificed everything for us, are not willing to sacrifice something for the lost, sacrifice our time, or our money, or our convenience, or our comfort. Or our favorite pew, which seems to be a big deal these days. Or our narrow circle of friends, if we're not willing to act on what we claim to believe. Those unbelievers for whom we pray may never believe what we claim. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to notice and to care, to love and to serve those who do not yet know you. May we remember what it was like to be on the outside. May we remember what it was like when we were not yet known by you. At least we didn't think so. May we remember what it was like when we discovered someone who said, come, come to church with me. Come and hear what God says. May we remember that and be stirred out of our prayer life and beyond into action. Forgive us, God, that we don't love the lost like you do. Thank you that you loved us when we were lost, and I pray, God, that we will do better as a people.